Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're talking about the obscure medical history of the 20th century as revealed by the Lamb's Head Pocket Guide. Uh, this is a small section of a bigger book. This section is written by Stepan Chapman. Yeah, this is a story that was nominated by one of our patrons, and it's something I'm fairly excited for because we're going to be breaking the mold a little bit here, which I think is a great way to to start the new year. It's a great way to, to welcome in 2020. And this piece was published in the Thackeray T. Lambshead Pocket Guide to Eccentric and Discredited Diseases, which is a, a book that came out in 2003. It's a collection of pieces by just about everyone who was writing weird fiction in the early 2000s, and this includes uh, Jeff Vandermeer, Mark Roberts. Uh, they were also the editors. We've also got Neil Gaiman and China Mieville, uh, Alan Moore, Michael Moorcock, and just loads more. Basically, it's a who's who of weird fiction writers from 15 years ago. Yeah, and that really takes up the vast majority of the book. As you said, Glenn, it's just a collection of odd medical diseases and maladies and scenarios written by a, a bunch of writers that everybody's heard of and, and, and many you haven't. So it's a great introduction to writers working in the field who you might not find unless you're a subscriber to magazines and things like that. But this section at the end is really just sort of a breeze through uh, major events in the 20th century uh, as told by Stepman Chapman as a sort of alternate medical history of, of these sorts of of these major events that everybody definitely knows have happened. Right. This piece is not a narrative, though it is the closest thing that comes to that in this book. Really, it is just this essay that gives us this kind of fictional secret history behind real world events and, and real world people that we all know about. And, and this is a move that we've seen before on the network. It's a, it's a move that's, I think, actually fairly common in this type of fiction, in speculative fiction. Uh, this is something that we saw Neil Gaiman use in the very first issue of Sandman, where the very real sleeping sickness that coincided with the First World War is blamed not on an outbreak of encephalitis, as it actually was, but on the imprisonment of Dream him, himself, right? So it, it, this is the sort of thing that we're in for in this book. But because this is not a narrative, we are going to break out of our normal format here. So rather than do a, a recap with a commentary and then followed up with a, a discussion, it's our, our normal format, uh, instead, this episode, we're just going to go back and forth, really. We're just going to share some of the episodes, some of the, the highlights here that jumped out most to us, and we'll chat about them a little bit. And then at the end of all of that, we'll have a small discussion about this style of storytelling. But before we do that, before we get into the episode proper today, we want to let you know about another episode we just released, this one on Patreon for our supporters. It's an episode that we had a lot of fun doing. And of course, it's one that we hope will entice some of you to join us over there. Yes, that's right. We covered The Phoenix on the Sword, which is by Robert E. Howard. It is the first Conan story. Uh, it's a couple short chapters about Conan getting this magical artifact from some ancient wizards uh, to defeat a great evil that has recently broken loose on the land. Uh, really interesting style of storytelling. And you, you see a lot of how Robert E. Howard has influenced the whole modern and contemporary fantasy scene, even from reading his first Conan story. So it was a real pleasure to read. Absolutely fascinating in terms of being an artifact of its time and also cool because it's Conan. So I really encourage you, uh, I really encourage all of our listeners to check that out. And if this really interests you and you're not a patron already, please consider supporting us on Patreon so you can get content like this. Uh, we have a bunch of other great stories and TV shows we've covered there as well. But Glenn, let's get into the obscure medical history of the 20th century. What was your first pick? What was the first episode or anecdote that really jumped out to you in this collection? This obscure history here is divided into to four periods. That's how Chapman divides up the 20th century here. And the, the first of them is covering the period 1921 to 1938. And Chapman just gives this the descriptor, the early editions, even though these are the years that really correspond to the interwar years, right? That period between the First and the Second World Wars. And I do think it's important to start at the beginning. So I'm going to talk for just a little bit about this first entry, which is actually partially a biography of Dr. Thackeray 
Jeffrey T. Lamb's head, uh, and partially a publication history of the early editions of the guide, hence the, the label, the early editions here. So Dr. Thackeray T. Lamb's head is the fictional character, this fictional doctor of the strange or doctor of the weird who has compiled these guides to bizarre, weird, strange, fictional medical conditions over the course of the 20th century. And we're told here in this little biography that he graduated from Oxford Medical College in 1918. So that means that he was a medical student during the First World War and therefore didn't serve during the war itself. We're also told that he was 18 at the time, so he would not have had to go to the war in any event. And there really is no such thing as Oxford Medical College, at least not at the University of Oxford in England, which the context indicates is what we're talking about here. And and really, this is just the first instance of fabricated, uh, fantastical elements that we're going to get in this piece. Lambset also served at some other made-up places in the UK, notably a, a hospital in Edinburgh and a hospital in Devon. And then he moved to Calcutta to help design an innovative sewage treatment plant there. And this is a note that maybe doesn't really actually amount to much of anything, but I found it interesting because Calcutta was the source of the first global cholera pandemic in 1817. It's frequently been plagued by cholera, and an innovative sewage system would be a part of a plan to curb cholera outbreaks. And curbing cholera outbreaks is really something that we did in the early 20th century. And this really jumped out to me simply because we just did Poe's story, The Sphinx, which has a cholera outbreak as a backdrop. So this just seems like sort of a a nod to uh, the way that cholera has influenced uh, weird fiction. I mean, the story of The Sphinx is the only one we've encountered with this so far, but it's not going to be the last as as we read more and more of these 19th century stories. But at any rate, it's in Calcutta that Lambshead writes the first edition of the guide to weird medical conditions. And this guide is meant to help physicians diagnose patients with these weird conditions, these strange conditions. And I just want to read the last paragraph of this entry because I think it nicely sets us up to talk about some of the the entries about the weird medical history of the 20th century here. So here's here's what Chapman writes here in this first entry. He says, Crucial events in the conduct of world affairs and in the lives of great men have been profoundly affected by the guide. But more importantly, it can always be relied on for accurate reportage, even when the official story of a case is merely a tissue of fabrications. And right, this is exactly what we're in for. We're going to get two different types of entries here. Entries where the guide itself has actually helped people navigate some horrible or horrific situation during the 20th century, or a situation where the history we think we know is really just an official cover story that is a tissue of fabrications. And so I think that preps us to go through some of our personal highlights now. But before we actually get to the highlights, before we get to some of those episodes, I want to pause on a peculiar feature of this obscure medical history of the 20th century and and note that it leaves off 20% of that history, that we actually only start in the third decade of the century. And in particular, what we're missing here is the First World War. I have to say that that strikes me as a strange choice from a storytelling point of view, right? If I had been given this brief by the editors of this book, I would have wanted to write a lot about the First World War and aspects of it. It just struck me as a strange choice. Yeah, it absolutely is. But I mean, part of it is that they've concocted this character of of Dr. Lambshead, and he was born in 1900 and graduated medical school in 1918. So he wouldn't have had he wouldn't have had the pull to put together uh, the guide prior to him being a doctor. But even so, we're given reference to doctors who maybe were active in in the time of the first. 20 years in the first 20 years of the 20th century but it could also be that the writers of this guide just simply have more respect for the history of World War 1 than for the interwar period and World War 2 and beyond and and they kick this history off with uh you know the first entry which is about polio and influenza uh, particularly about the Spanish flu in which many, many, many people die. And they do reference the Great War here. Uh, They say the so-called Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 claimed a larger number of lives than the Great War. So there's like a reference to the lives lost, but there's no secret history of World War I or medical history of World War I here in this story. And basically they say what the Spanish flu was, uh, was really Tunisian skin mites. Uh, And this is to refute the idea that the 
that the flu is an airborne disease that can be caught through germs moving in the air, but rather it's by these tiny mites that jump from body to body. And so, you know, I don't know what the, I don't really know what the cure is for that, but that was the reality of the Spanish flu, the secret history that took place. And that really just gives you a sense of what is taking place in this whole section of the guide. Right. And a lot of the conditions that we're going to find out about here are actually going to turn out to be like little insects of, of some sort. This is uh, something that these writers seem to really enjoy, or I guess maybe Chapman seems to really in- enjoy. And the, the first real entry here that I picked is a short one on Roald Amundsen, who was a serious business explorer during the early part of the 20th century. And of course, listeners who have also joined us on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast know that I absolutely love exploration stories and wilderness adventure stories. I mean, really, even just my love of Jesuits in space is really just part of a larger love of all explorer stories, kind of no matter what the form is. All right. So Roald Amundsen was a Norwegian explorer who led the very first team that reached the South Pole. This was in 1911 and also led the first team that reached the North Pole and that he did in 1926. He also led the first voyage through the Northwest Passage, which connects the Atlantic Ocean with the the Pacific Ocean, this seaway that goes through Canada. And this was an expedition that took a very long time, took three years from 1903 to 1906, and they had to just winter on on the ice as their ship got frozen in the the Arctic ice flow, which itself sounds absolutely terrifying. And the, the vessel that Amundsen used for this expedition is actually on display in the Fram Museum in Oslo, which is someplace I got to visit a few years ago. And I have to say, it was very, very cool to stand on this ship and to to go below decks and see what it would have been like to actually be on this expedition. But mostly I was surprised actually at how small it was. I mean, it was only crewed by Amundsen and five other people, but it was a very tiny ship. Uh, It just seemed poised to to lead people who are, you know, trapped in the ice for six months uh, and living uh, in the dark without seeing any sunlight for that time as well uh, into homicide and cannibalism, which is actually not what happened to them. And of course, actually, all of this, all of these types of expeditions that Amundsen led is really material that's already present in weird fiction, right? Lovecraft's novel At the Mountains of Madness deals with an early 20th century expedition in Antarctica. Uh, We've got Dan Simmons' novel The Terror, which is about a 19th century attempt to traverse the Northwest Passage, which does devolve into some of the horrors I just described. Uh, And that book, by the way, almost did actually make it onto the new solo podcast that we're going to start releasing later this year. It actually lost the vote to Roger Zelazny's Night in the Lonesome October by only, I think, really just one or two votes. But anyway, since there is already a big tradition of this type of exploration in weird fiction, you might actually expect that the Pocket Guide is going to do something about ancient aliens or cannibalism or sea monsters. But no, it actually kind of takes its cue from this entry on polio. And it's, in fact, actually about Arctic fleas. So in 1925, Amundsen had attempted to reach the North Pole by use of flying boats, which is a type of airplane that can land and take off on water. Uh, But that expedition failed. It didn't make it. But then the next year, he went back by regular boat, and then they did make it. But here, this entry in this weird alternate history, the claim is that Amundsen had actually been using airships, not airboats, right? Zeppelins. And that the expedition had had to turn back because of these Arctic zigzag fleas. And the only reason that the next attempt was successful was because the pocket guide has an entry on these fleas and how to avoid being bitten by them or succumbing to whatever illness it is that they're they're carrying. And so this is one of these instances in which having the guide uh, changed the course of history in the 20th century. Almost every entry in here has some note about how whether or not you use the guide is really going to impact whether or not you can survive in the modern world. You know, if only they had had the guide, they would have survived uh, or whatever. So it's really, it's really funny. I'm really glad you pointed out the connections between these sorts of, you know, North and South Pole explorations uh, to weird fiction, uh, because it's not something I picked up on. And I was as I was as I was really reading through the back of this book, but but kind of looking at it now, you really see how a lot of the diseases and people that they chose to explore in the 20th century do have ties to a lot of kind of weird and new weird fiction uh, writers and themes. One of them, of course, is Franz Kafka. And this entry on Franz Kafka is a little bit funny because it's not just about 
Kafka. But basically, it's like everybody knows that Kafka died with most of his work unpublished of tuberculosis. But what this pre what this history presupposes is maybe he didn't. Uh, and so Kafka here uh, in this telling of history died of polyretinoidal ink poisoning, which is essentially uh, poisoning from drinking way too much ink and the kind of th- the kinds of things that ink can do to your body if you drink a lot of it. So it's kind of funny. But the writer of this history also points out that there are a lot of other famous sufferers of diseases like Lou Gehrig or Woody Guthrie, who had uh, Huntington's disease, uh, that they never had these diseases uh, that you know in the way that the public was aware of them and instead they they just should have had the guide they were going to the wrong doctors i mean it feels like a real push for sort of weird odd alternative or like homeopathic medicine here in this book but what's also funny in this kafka section is that we're told that shirley temple was actually just a midget uh and it's just kind of a funny sentence it, it, it tickled me in a strange way Right, because that sentence is actually quite a non sequitur, right? The rest of this is actually about people having diseases that are different from the disease that we, uh, that they're famous for having, like Lou Gehrig never had Lou Gehrig's disease is kind of the first sentence here, which is, I suppose, a funny thing to say on the face of it. But this is just kind of a, a non sequitur thrown in at the end, which I guess is supposed to make it the, the punchline of of the joke of this this entry here. Yeah, I also think the the entry on Lon Chaney in this section is pretty funny because it essentially reminds me of what my go-to joke is with like uh, extensive makeup on TV shows. And if if you know any listeners have watched a lot of TV with me here, uh, they might hear me say that like you know they that the that the show creators didn't have to use makeup on a character like Worf or something like that, and that they have to use make makeup to make somebody like that look. Uh, human instead of like a Klingon, and they're really lucky to find actors who look so much like the characters they're trying to create. Anyway, it's a dumb joke, but sometimes it works in person. You probably have to be there. But this Lon Chaney section here is essentially that joke that Lon Chaney had uh, a kind of a sculptable bone structure and skull, and that he didn't wear makeup in any of the roles he's famous for, like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or the Hunchback of Notre Dame, but rather he was forced to be made up like a like a normal human facial structure when he went out in public. And so I just thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, I like the entry on Lan Chaney as well. In fact, as I, I just mentioned that I've been reading Night in the Lonesome October by Roger Zelazny because it won the, the Patreon vote for this other show that we'll start releasing later this year. And there's a Lon Chaney as werewolf joke in that book as well. So I don't know, you can get a lot of mileage out of Lon Chaney jokes uh, with weird fiction writers, it turns out. So if you ever find yourself hanging out with some, <laughs> I don't know, bust out the Lon Chaney jokes, I guess. Well, Next up, we've got a section on the war years, uh, meaning here the Second World War. This period lasts from 1939 to 1945. We get another brief bit of biography here about Lambshead, which tells us that he returned to Devon in the UK in order to work on reconstructive surgery for wounded soldiers during the war. And, you know, thinking about things like facial reconstruction or people looking differently, uh, being unfamiliar with their own identity after having received a traumatic injury. Uh, this is uh, a fairly significant trope in uh, all sorts of like gothic fiction and, and other types of horror fiction and, and weird fiction as well. So again, here Chapman is sort of thinking about the tropes and how Lambshead's own career can kind of fit inside of those tropes. But this section on the Second World War is actually the shortest section, at least if we're measuring by the number of entries, because there are only four of them. Uh, and since there are only four entries here, we're going to actually talk about all of them uh, to some degree here. And Brandon, you're going to go first here. Which one did you want to focus on? Yeah, I want to start with Stalingrad, which is the first one that uh, is mentioned in the war years here. And this entry is talking about the Battle of Stalingrad, which took place over over five months uh, and ended in February of 1943. And it, it was one of the most brutal battles in World War II and it had an incredibly high casualty rate like something like two million people were died or were wounded at during the battle of stalingrad and and that includes tens of thousands of civilians and so many terrible things happened at the battle of stalingrad and what this section of this history focuses on is the fact that it was cold and people got frostbite but it wasn't really frostbite it was uh it was stress related toe resorption 
which is to say the toes like curled back up into the feet. And, you know, this entry claims that because the Russians had the guide, they were able to uh, beat this toe resorption and kind of hang out in the cold longer than the Germans. But Goebbels outlawed the medical guide and Germans could not combat the toe resorption and, and lost their toes. Again, not due to the frostbite and the bitter cold in which people died of starvation and elemental exposure and bullet wounds and disease. And instead uh, died because they didn't have the guide. And so this really jumped out to me because it, it just really downplays the horrors of that battle. And I think if I were going to go full horror, if this was a book that wasn't trying to kind of balance on the knife's edge between uh, kind of black comedy and horror, you know, I'd, I'd be inclined to write something about like the siege of Leningrad or something like that, which was absolutely horrific uh, in, in terms of the extremes people went to to survive. It has maybe a little more there to grab onto in terms of uh, a weird fiction story. You could probably write a great like Russian vampire story about the siege of Leningrad or some kind of disease, as, as they talk about later, uh, Glenn, as you're going to talk about in the, the gulags in a little bit. Um, but I was just I was just sort of shocked here because to me, the, the, the balance was not struck between what's supposed to be funny. Toe resorption is a kind of really funny phrase and just the genuine horrors of this five month siege and battle in World War II. I guess the humor of this is supposed to come out of the story that I think probably we've all heard, which is that the the German army invading Russia in the late summer and autumn of 1942 was just unprepared to deal with a, a harsh winter, to deal with uh, the type of winter that you get on the Russian steppe. And armchair generals have blamed the defeat of the German army on that lack of preparation, saying things like if they had you know rations that would have uh, dealt better with the cold, uh, they would have fought better. And maybe most importantly, if they'd had gear, uh, if they'd had clothing that was better suited for the winter in particular, that they didn't know the trick of uh, issuing soldiers boots that were actually a little bit too big so that they could wear more socks and keep their feet warm and have room actually to move their feet around or wiggle their toes, basically, uh, in order to avoid frost. It is true that the frostbite did savage these armies, but it does treat this uh, a little bit like a, a joke as well, saying, yes, it's true that uh, the German army lost this battle and, and there were over one million combined combat deaths during these five months, uh, but it was mostly because they lost toes to frostbite. But even even funnier than that is that it wasn't actually frostbite. It was this weird disease that uh, you've never heard of. It's not the joke I would have made about Stalingrad, I will say, but uh, that's getting ahead of ourselves. We will actually be taking that issue up in the discussion a little bit. And I'm actually going to take the only, I think, truly lighthearted entry in this section on the Second World War, uh, though maybe it's only lighthearted by comparison to the other entries that we're going to talk about here. And this is one on Albert Hoffman, who was the Swiss chemist who discovered LSD in 1938. So really uh, right on the eve of the war. Uh, of course, LSD is a hallucinogenic drug. It received a lot of use within the, the counterculture of the 1960s, has a big place in the history of rock music during that time, right? I think everybody knows the Beatles song, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, and probably everyone has heard that clip about the brown acid at Woodstock. Uh, and this drug also has a place in the history of speculative fiction. Uh, Philip K. Dick used it a few times, and it did influence his his later works. And Alan Moore, whom we have talked about on this show in the context of Swamp Thing, and who also has written some things for the present book that we're discussing, he's actually written that LSD use had a profound effect on his imagination, a profound effect that he regards as uh, positive, though he was also kicked out of school for dealing LSD. So, you know, there's that side of it, too. But anyway, Hoffman here gets an entry, not actually because of LSD, but because he also invented another drug. And this is the, the made up one here, right? It's not, not a real drug here. Uh, this made up drug induced brain acceleration. It's a drug cocktail made up of harmaline, telepathine, and isodrine. As you can 
see, I guess, that it does what it says on the, the label here. And the idea is that people using this cocktail developed temporary enhanced mental powers. And the gimmick is that most of the significant technological advances of the Second World War, things like rockets and nuclear weapons and even computers, happened because their inventors were on this drug and were able to use these powers. And the entry here quotes Werner von Braun, who's basically the godfather of rocketry, uh, quotes him as saying in a letter to Hoffman, this is made up again, and he says, Eternal thanks for the ampules. I can now read the mind of any machine I encounter and can bend it to my will. Your drug will revolutionize everything. So there are a lot of weird fiction ideas here, including right the notion that machines have minds and wills, and also that telepathic powers are a real thing. Right. This entry also points out that the Nazis uh, tried to reverse engineer this drug and were unable to do it. And that also led to their inability to sort of win the atomic bomb arms race uh, that was taking place in World War II as well. Again, there's just a lot of strange sort of connections in history here uh, that, are, that are kind of fun to read about. You know, they're pointed out and it's and it's fun. Um, but there's this weird implication in this book that if the Nazis had had this, if, if Hitler and the, and the Germans had had this book in World War II, uh, the world would be in a, a very, very different place. So uh, just, a, just a strange sort of edge to it that I'm still wondering exactly what that means. But we'll be able to talk about that in the discussion as well. Yeah, this story, this... Uh, War period also talks about the death of FDR, and, and it, sell, it tells us that FDR did not die from health complications related to polio, but uh, really some early KGB, you know, CIA sort of assassination mischief. And what we get here is that the Russian agents have placed uh, Uzbekistani electric head lice onto FDR uh, kind of surreptitiously during some sort of meeting. And that caused his respiratory health to decline and, and led to his untimely death as well. So, again, this is referencing sort of the kind of insane Cold War, uh, you know, world leader assassination plots that that have been unearthed in, in our recent past with these sorts of games being played by by the secret agencies of these different countries. Right. And we're going to get some of that in the next section, which is entirely about the Cold War, which runs from 1946 until 1990. I, actually, I guess before we move into that, though, I do want to say that uh, there is also an entry in the Second World War section on Adolf Hitler. We're going to talk about that at the end when we'll have our, our discussion segment. But all right, the Cold War here. So there are maybe a few lighthearted entries on pop culture figures in this section, but most of it deals with pretty heavy topics, again, just like the one in the Second World War. And I'm going to talk about one of these heavy topics for my first pick. And this is one you mentioned already, Brandon, this is on gulags. The gulag was a Soviet prison system in which people, the state had identified as either political or ideological enemies of some sort, were sent to forced labor camps in isolated locations around the Soviet Union. Uh, most of these were in Siberia. That's certainly our pop culture image of gulags, but there actually were gulags everywhere around the Soviet Union. I think probably about 20% of them were in places that are now not actually Russia, like Ukraine and, and Kazakhstan, uh, Uzbekistan, and, and, and so on. And when this system began in the 1920s, really just after the revolution of 1917, the idea here was that they would be used for re-education, and the population of these gulags was measured in the tens of thousands, which is a lot of people, but it's going to become way worse than that. And when Stalin came to power in the 1930s, he robustly expanded this system. And in fact, technically, the system only starts here. Gulag is actually the name of the organization that oversaw these prisons, and Gulag as an organization was actually not founded until 1930. But by 1935, there were over a million people in the, the gulags. And that's not even the high point here. Uh, the gulag system was actually abolished after Stalin's death in 1953, though you know there were still prisons like this, but the gulag system itself was abolished. But when all was said and done, about 18 million people were sent to the gulags between 1930 and 1953, which is a lot of people. In fact, it's so large, right, that it almost loses any emotional resonance. But to put that figure in context, that is more people than died during the Holocaust, and it's more people than were enslaved and brought to the New World from Africa during the transatlantic slave trade. It's just a massive amount of people. And to be clear, these were not 
summer camps, right? These were forced labor camps. People were worked to death here. The average mortality rate over these 23 years was about 8%. Uh, so it's about one and a half million people who died in the gulags or, or, or died because of the conditions of the gulags. And this gulag system, this looms large, I think, in our perception of the Cold War, and for good reason. And combined with the concentration camps of the Holocaust, right, this was a real fear that Westerners had about totalitarianism in the 20th century. This is something that we've seen in Gene Wolfe's novel, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, some of which takes place in various parts of a speculative fiction prison system, uh, one of which is actually a forced labor camp. So all of that's the real history of gulags here. But what the Lambshead Guide does with the gulags is to say that everyone knows that these were prisons for dissidents, but actually, they really weren't, right? That's the official cover story for something that's much weirder than that. And so really, the gulag system was actually created in response to what Chapman describes here as the inexplicable lemming-like migration of otherwise sane Russian citizens to the bleak Siberian wastes. And this is behavior that began in 1946. And I have to say, I think that's a bit of bad research here on Chapman's part, I think. Uh, And So this began in 1946, and it involved millions of Russians manically traveling to Siberia in order to gorge themselves on the frozen black mud. And it was inexplicable, right? Uh, But it is what these people wanted to do. And in fact, if they were forcibly removed, they would just go back to Siberia and continue to eat this black mud all day. And so the Soviet government built the gulag system actually to house these people and to try to care for them, that this was actually like a humanitarian response to a crisis and not this horrific prison system. And the guide comes into this because a Soviet bureaucrat came across a copy of the guide and read Dr. Neil Gaiman's uh, entry here. That's that's part of the gimmick, I guess we probably should have talked about already, right? Is that uh, the authors of the entries in this guide actually appear in the guide as these medical authorities. Uh, So there was Dr. Neil Gaiman's 1944 entry on Mongolian mud constipation and on which antibiotics are effective in treating it. And when the Gulag residents were properly treated, they were actually able to go back to their normal lives and hence the system came to an end. Yeah, I'm not really sure what the joke is here other than that uh, they, they wrote this other than that, Stepan Chapman kind of wrote this section and I think maybe was trying to mine the previous entries for uh, diseases or whatever that could be used in a contemporary history of the 20th century or medical history. Th- this whole section to me of the Cold War years is a little bit rough. A lot of serious issues and events that took place during this time period are mentioned, including the AIDS crisis and epidemic and the JFK assassination. And it's a little uncomfortable to see some of these things treated as jokes. Um, But I want to point out here uh, for my uh, entry in this section, the Rosenberg executions, because to me, this is uh, kind of playing with the kind of history that Quentin Tarantino has been trying to do in his films like Inglorious Bastards and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is maybe to use a fiction and storytelling as a means to correct uh, or or avoid altogether what could have been past wrongs uh, and maybe save lives if people had acted in a certain way. This entry on the Rosenberg claims that the Rosenbergs survived their execution. And Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were a, uh, a couple, uh, both in the military, and they were convicted of being Soviet spies in the 1950s and were executed as a result of kind of an elaborate espionage plot that they were caught up in. And their execution, their story became a massive sort of lightning rod in American culture at the time. Many people were protesting or proclaiming their innocence, and people were sort of... It turns out, and it turns out that the Rosenbergs were actually engaging in some uh, espionage, but this was one of those events where having the right kind of public sentiment in front of your friends or peer groups was really more important than the facts of the situation. It showed what side of culture you were supporting and what you were a part of. And this case is also a really big part of The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, um, as the main character in that book is thinking about the Rosenberg executions um, as they are dealing with the potential of getting electroshock therapy and also getting it uh, in the book as a new treatment for this sort of black depression that the main character 
is experiencing. And so this kind of power of electricity to kill people, but to also heal them is kind of caught up in this moment as well. But this medical history here says that the Rosenbergs were able to fake their deaths with the aid of a doctor and a little known African root that helped them survive. It kind of put them to sleep, helped them uh, become immune to the uh, effects of electricity. And once their bodies were taken away from the uh, electrocution chamber. They were revived and given new identities, and they were set up for retirement in New Mexico. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just a fascinating case, uh, an insight into a moment of history looking at the Rosenberg case. But I, I'm not sure what is going on here uh, because they were actually engaged in some spycraft against the United States. So this this one really just kind of jumped out to me as a very strange entry, but also pretty interesting and, and trying to keep its finger on the pulse of the big things that were happening during the Cold War. Right. I'm not actually sure that this is one that I would have put on my list, right? If someone had just come to me and said, make a list of 10 interesting things that happened during the Cold War, this would not have made it to my list. And the interesting thing about the Rosenbergs is not that they committed treason uh, or that they were actually agents of the Soviet Union. It's not the, the interesting thing about them is not that there was this espionage game going on. The interesting thing about them is that they were actually executed, right? This is a big deal in the United States where most of our things that are crimes are crimes at the state level. States execute people for all sorts of things. I mean, I don't want to say all the time because that's not true, but it's it's not an uncommon thing in the United States. But the federal government doing it is a really big deal. And so that's what the Rosenbergs are famous for, is not that they committed treason, but that they got executed for it. And so if you're going to put a twist on their story, that's the twist that you have to have, right? Everyone thinks they were actually executed, but in fact, they weren't. But I did find it an interesting artifact here in this section. But I think another interesting artifact here is about the space race, which is the last entry that I'm going to talk about. I think most people know what the space race was, right? This was the competition between the United States and the Soviet Union to, I don't know, I guess, control space in some way, right? This manifested as attempts to get into orbit and then get to the moon, uh, attempts to build space stations and, and so on. And really, the space race itself was part of the wider arms race, this big competition between the two superpowers of the Cold War. And much of our success in the space race was based on the work of Werner von Braun. He was this German scientist. We've encountered him uh, already in this entry on Albert Hoffman, uh, who was captured by the American army in 1945. There's a, a much larger story behind that that, uh, that doesn't make it here under the guide. And we don't need to, it does not need to make it into our episode here, but it's a fascinating story. But the part of the space race that this entry is actually going to focus on is not Werner von Braun and his like telepathic drug that he's taking. It's actually on the 1967 accident with Apollo 1 that killed the astronauts Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee in a fire during a test of the spacecraft in Florida. If you've seen the movie Apollo 13, then this is the opening scene. So you've seen something about this. Uh, it's also in the miniseries from the Earth to the Moon and, and really probably in anything about the space race that you've seen. Uh, the cause of the fire was an initial spark from faulty wiring, I guess, basically. Uh, But of course, then this combined with the fact that they're just pumping pure oxygen into the spacecraft, which is highly flammable. But the real tragedy here that these astronauts were burned to death in this fire in the spacecraft is that the astronauts couldn't get out because of the system of hatches. And uh, this is something that NASA changed as a result of this accident, making it easier for astronauts to actually get out of the spaceship if they needed to do that. So what the guide does with this episode is to blame the cause of this accident on Soviet agents. It's the the same move that we saw with FDR. Uh, And this guide posits that the CIA and the KGB were super involved in continuous efforts to sabotage each other's space programs all throughout the Cold War. Uh, This included using the soil spiders of Yakutsk in order to kill the head of the Soviet space program back in 1966. And in this case here with the Apollo 1 accident, the KGB did something to Roger Chaffee that made his body combust during this test. And so this was really uh, an act of of violence by the KGB and not an accident of the, the wiring and the faulty hatch system and so on. And this section is really full of that sort of, you know, Cold War paranoia. And it's it's kind of fun to read, but it, it just doesn't quite, for me, uh, always land because it's not dealing with like the impact and 
reality of what these events meant and how they shaped our culture. In my opinion, something like a secret history or an alternate history uh, of, of medicine that allows things to be the same and continue on the same path of progress should be about like narrowly avoiding accidents rather than um, just coming up with another reason for why they took place. And, you know, as I said, this section is really is dealing with a lot of heavy, very serious events of the 20th century, but it does also include some real moments of lightness and levity. And I think a great example of that is the sexual revolution section in this medical history. We're just given a very brief description, which I think is kind of funny for its absurdity. It says, uh, speaking of kinky sex, in the 1976 edition, freelance podiatrist, podiatrist Dr. Lance Olson presented definitive evidence that the sexual revolution was caused by saccharin. That's all you get about it. Nothing about, you know, the Kinsey experiments or anything going on uh, exploring the spectrums of sexuality, just merely the introduction of this kind of alternate form of uh, sugar has basically caused this to take place. Uh, it's pretty funny, and I think it treats the, 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 it treats the sexual revolu- revolution with a sort of uh, levity that I th- that is probably uh, appropriate, though there was much more to the sexual revolution than just uh, people, I guess, having sex <laughs> openly. Right, but the idea that this is really just a bunch of young people who uh, have had too much sugar and are uh, uh, need to get it out of their system, <laughs> I suppose that that is a little bit funny. And actually, earlier in the guide, in fact, there's an entry on Margaret Mead, who is uh, work on cultural anthropology, and in particular on comparative sexuality was also a big part actually of the sexual revolution so i don't know there's maybe quite a bit of that uh maybe so so there's maybe something of a through line here uh in the entry but that was our our last bit for the cold war and so the final section of this obscure medical history of the 20th century is called a century winds down uh this is the greatest decade of all decades of all time the 1990s uh when dr lambshead really sort of retires from uh being a wandering medical practitioner uh takes up a post uh, in Devon in the village called Whimpering on the Brink uh, at the Institute for Further Study. Those things are pretty hilarious to me, at least from an, from an academic standpoint anyway. Right. Uh, and this is, of course, because it's only one decade. It's not a particularly long section. And so, Brandon, you're just going to present one of these, uh, these entries to us. Which one did you pick? The one that really jumped out to me was the one just called plutonium. And this entry purports that a CDC scalp specialist, Jeffrey Ford, blew the whistle on the Atomic Energy Commission for hiding spent plutonium in storage sheds of random suburban homes. And then the AEC sent the residents of those homes junk mail dusted with some sort of special like forget dust that caused uh, short-term memory loss in the residents. And this, though this has been blown up by the guide, it's still an ongoing problem. Um, but, you know, what What this, what really interested me in this was it calls to mind the history of the U.S. government uh, occasionally experimenting on its citizens, you know, with or without their knowledge. The LSD experiments that we brought up, the creation of LSD, its ties to the MK Ultra program, and the sorts of... Uh, unwitting participants in some of these programs uh, is really fascinating. And if you go and you look at the history of the U.S., uh, the U.S. has done experiments on its own citizens uh, at at various times. Um, And, you know, who's to say whether or not these things are ongoing? So I think what, what I really liked about this entry, though, was it sort of reveals maybe the mindset of the writer in an interesting way, which is, This whole section of the book here leans heavily into kind of strange avenues of conspiracy theories and kind of pokes at them in interesting ways. Um, And this, this entry here just really shed light on that for me as a reader. Well, I think this is one of the real hallmarks of the 90s is that we've gone through the entirety of the Cold War in which there's this perceived threat by the Soviet Union. Uh, and in order to deal with that perceived threat, and not just that it was a, a, a threat, but that it was a particularly powerful threat and a particularly insidious threat, right? That there were the sort of two arms here of nuclear weapons and then also the espionage war in which treason was a big deal. And that's really the hallmark of the Cold War. And in order to combat those things, American citizens really 
gave up a lot of liberties, ceded a lot of power to the federal government in order to do all sorts of secret things. And by the 1990s, then we were actually more afraid of the power of the American government, at least in speculative fiction, right? Thinking about things like Area 51 and actually knowing about aliens and so on. We were more afraid of that than we were of you know the enemy at that point. And this is basically the exact plot of the X-Files. And frankly, this entry sounds like the treatment for an X-Files episode that just, you know, couldn't get sold, a sort of X-Files spec script that uh, that Chapman couldn't sell. Right. One thing that really shocked me about this entry, maybe shocked is the wrong word, but uh, caused me to think a little bit was that it, it still focused on the the paranoia about the paranoia about the American government and its actions and doesn't really quite make the move uh, into how corporations are treating nature and chemical waste and and various things like that um, and so the the real focus on how the government is still sort of the big bad rather than making the sort of what you might expect to be a cyberpunk move to cor- cor- rampant corporatism uh, uh, was something that stood out to me as as lacking in this section on the 90s. Yeah, there is one entry during the Cold War years on Pepsi, the company, the corporation PepsiCo. But even that entry is not actually about this sort of cyberpunk corporatism gone mad idea that, that you're thinking of here, Brandon. It's actually about Pepsi's involvement in Latin America, which is actually really just another feature of the Cold War. It's American economic imperialism in the way that foreign policy was meant to prop up the cheap supply and cheap labor that goes into these corporations. But there was no sense that the corporations themselves were superseding government authority, were kind of trying to replace government in some way and we're the big bad it's it's definitely government is the big bad here and i guess if there's any kind of through line through all the way through uh chapman's sort of alternate secret history here of the 20th century it is an emphasis on totalitarian governments or the the sort of extreme power of governments and all the sort of weird things that can happen and horrific things that can happen as a result of that yeah, that's certainly the sense that I got from reading this as well. And it's kind of strange reading this, you know, 16 years after it was published and the way that this sort of conspiratorial thinking has led to various uh, political movements in our country. Like, the normalization of using uh, alternate facts, as they were famously called, uh, to get people to change their minds uh, on political issues, on medical issues, and things like that, has made me recognize in reading this just how much kind of the the landscape has changed in the past you know fifteen or so years in terms of uh, the treatment of history as fact and uh, the the preciousness of n- needing to recover the truth. Rather rather than play games with it. And I do have to wonder if a book like this would actually be written today, right? Now that we are solidly in the information age, which it does turn out actually really kind of renders information fairly malleable and sometimes quite dangerous ways. If we actually want to lean into this type of storytelling with these alternative histories or secret histories anymore, I think that's actually a really interesting question. Right? We'll see you know, in the, the next decade or so how the, the extent to which alternate history speculative fiction sort of waxes or wanes as this has become a real part of our our political discourse as well. Well, we promised several times throughout our run through here of the the secret history of the 20th century here, whether this type of secret history of famous events undermines the seriousness with which we remember tragedies uh, such as the Holocaust or, you know, the Gulag system that I made a big deal of here. And I guess that's the sort of question on the table, Brandon. I mean, does the attempt to make some of these things funny here, does this undermine our memorialization of tragedies and other horrific things in our past? Yeah, I mean, I think kind of continuing what we were what we were just talking about, if everybody has a real baseline understanding of these events and what's going on, if everybody ha- is sort of in agreement with the objective facts of these realities... Uh, then to, to propose a sort of secret or alternate history can be a kind of fun joke, a way to allow levity into some of these events. But like I said, reading this today, years after this was pu- published, more than a decade after it was published, and seeing the rise of some fringe theories regarding alternate or secret histories and the people behind them and the people behind the sort of conspiratorial 
style thinking, I think it does end up undermining the seriousness uh, with which these tragedies are remembered and with which they need to be encountered. I think it's just such a different mindset uh, that we live in today than than the writers of this book lived in uh, when they were getting their briefs on what to send in and when their deadlines were. That especially this last section does indicate a mindset that the people reading this will, one, recognize it's a comedy book, and two, have a a sort of genuine agreement on the facts of the past and that this is just a kind of a a joke. It's just in fun. Um, But it's just, it's so weird. I did not expect to really be thinking about this uh, topic this week as I was reading this sort of jokey uh, secret medical history of the 20th century. No, I, I didn't either. And, you know, I think when I was younger, I would have read this book and I would have laughed at all of these things, even as I was a massive you know, history junkie in high school. And of course, I've gone on to uh, make something of it living as a a history instructor at a university as well. But I remember really thinking about this for the first time, actually, when I took my little brother to go see the first Captain America movie, the first Avenger, which is the one that takes place during the Second World War, which shows us a Second World War that is really actually about the ambitions of Red Skull, right? It's about the ambitions of this supervillain, and that the actual war itself is really just a smokescreen. It's just a, a, a distraction. And all of the, the tragedies of the Second World War, including the, the Holocaust and the atomic bombing, uh, all of the, the famines that resulted from the destabilization of ecosystems and the global trade, all of that was just uh, trivial and was only the result of this cartoon villain, right? And it kind of bothered me while I was watching the movie to see these horrible tragedies trivialized this way. But I think what really bothered me about it was that afterwards, talking to my little brother, who was only in in middle school at the time, didn't have enough context to actually think about this as a twist on the real story and to find that an entertaining story, think about maybe some of the things that Captain America stands for and what the movie's trying to be about, and was just generally kind of confused, actually, about what the Second World War itself was about. So the educator in me, and this was really, I think, after my first year at Princeton uh, that this that this happened, the nascent educator in me, you know, reacted really strongly to that. And in fact, uh, I went out and got a bunch of books about World War II and gave them to him. Uh, We went to the Art Institute in Chicago, uh, which had an exhibit actually about Soviet propaganda during the war. We saw that, which, you know, I think I masqueraded that actually as a, you know, let's go into the city and get a hot dog or something like that. Uh, And in fact, we also played a ton of Axis and Allies that summer. I was kind of trying to come up with all these fun activities that would actually educate him about the war or give me opportunities to talk to him about the war because I felt like the, the MCU movie had done such a bad job of it and had trivialized it. And it really bothered me on this sort of like deep emotional level. And I found myself reacting very much the same way to this entry as well. But I don't think I would have if I'd read this in 2003 when it came out. Yeah, I think a part of it is the the kind of golden age of comics and the way a lot of comics were written, if we're, if we're talking about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, we're coming out of World War II and a need to sort of uh, fa- fantasize and f- make fantastic the kind of horrible realities of that war to show true heroes and to show supernatural villains and being so far removed from it where people are not educated in the same way or have not lived through it or their grandparents haven't lived through anything like that at all. Um, where there's not even like kind of a family history of this event, it does seem to really feel almost tone deaf to tell these sort of alternate histories of these big events where the 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 main audience has only done six hours of classwork on them in their whole career, in their whole academic career. So yeah, I, I feel the same way that, that things like that just... You know, I can enjoy those movies, but when I when I'm with my nieces or nephews and I ask them, you know, like what's going on, and they have no context for what's happening, I get a little huffy about it myself as well. Well, this is a topic that's actually come up for us on the network before when we covered Gene Wolfe's short story, How I Lost the Second World War and Helped Turn Back the German 
invasion. And this was something that came up on the the forum for that show. And there was a, a, a really fantastic post about whether the sort of jokey story that Gene Wolfe has written here about the, the Second World War, this is a, an alternate timeline story that uh, envisions uh, a world that doesn't actually have the Second World War, that doesn't happen. And so Hitler exists in this story just simply as the head of state of Germany and someone who's obsessed with cars and uh, turning the German economy around in a kind of economic competition rather than military competition. But something that came up on the forum was a question of whether or not a story like this normalizes Hitler by trivializing him, by making him slightly cartoonish and not addressing the anti-Semitism, not addressing the, the Holocaust. And I think that's a really fantastic question. And we do actually get in this book here too, in this in this obscure medical history of the 20th century, there is an entry on Hitler that we didn't talk about at the top of the show because we knew we wanted to talk about it here. And this entry just imagines that Adolf Hitler was actually a conjoined twin, although actually a conjoined half-twin. So uh, he really just was in one body, but the right side of his body was one person and the left side of his body was another. And nothing comes of this. There's nothing that, There's nothing here that says... And that's that's why he sent people to death camps. That's why he decided to become a, pol- a politician. That's why he embraced extremism. There's nothing pinned on that. Uh, the only thing that we're really told about it is that he was able to be awake for 24 hours a day because one half of him could sleep while the other half was awake doing things. But I still found this kind of unsettling in the same way that some of our listeners found Gene Wolfe's story doing a similar thing kind of unsettling, that it does sort of normalize the atrocities of Adolf Hitler and Nazi Party by trivializing them. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you on that. And I think one thing that Wolfe does that's the right choice for something like this is to set it in a decidedly alternate world where the world that we know of is is just a game being played by two men. And that that's sort of an old kind of almost Manichaean idea. You have the force of good and the force of bad, and uh, they're, they're sort of playing a game uh, with, with humanity. And that's, that's an old story. And so Wolf uses some of these kind of old storytelling techniques, um, I think, to firmly situate his story outside of our reality, um, though I absolutely understand some reader response uh, being that this trivializes or uh, normalizes the absolute heinousness of a person like Adolf Hitler. And there's a far more interesting history here, which is the real history of World War II in particular, um, and Hitler and his use of drugs and pushing drugs on German troops and, you know, the, the importance of, um, these sorts of ways of staying awake all at all hours that don't excuse any behavior, but it's, that's the real history. That's, that's what happened is people were trying to push the limits of humanity um it, during this war and and it, it's just uh, more satisfying than reading about a uh, uh a f- sort of failed conjoined twin in one body i mean it's just it's just a silly joke it's a, it's a carnival sideshow sort of sort of thing i will say that i do think one sort of like secret history thing that works for me that I can kind of watch on some level uh, are shows like Ancient Aliens on the History Channel, because their ultimate purpose is to try to communicate some sort of historical fact to the viewer, but they wrap it in the most absurd premise of all time. Uh, and the voiceover work doesn't really lend itself uh, to taking anything that they're provo- proposing very seriously. The, the voiceover actor will be like, could it be the case that Atlantis was home to like a thousand alien races? Um, but then they'll just talk about the history of the ancient world for like 25 minutes. So, you know, there is something despicable about that form of edutainment, as I think it's technically called as a genre. But if you're doing like alternate histories or secret histories, uh, I, I prefer the method that includes, you know, 80% actual fact and 20% absurd speculation uh, in, in terms of raising topics and events that have actually happened. So, you know, that that's sort of my take on on how, you know, alternate and secret histories can sort of work and, and be fun in our current age. 
Well, that's something that's noticeably missing from this secret history of the 20th century here is actually any mention of aliens. You would think that in a book like this, that, you know, going through the Cold War, uh, there would be an entry here on the UFO craze or an entry on Area 51. And, and these things are are totally absent. And we don't get anything from outer space as the, the cause of any of these things either, even though that's a, you know, a massive part of uh, science fiction, massive part of weird fiction. It's, you know, just a huge staple of the all the genres of speculative fiction that things coming from space having these disastrous consequences on us uh, we don't yeah there's no andromeda strain story here in this secret history of the 20th century i i think that's a that's a missed opportunity yeah i think i think so i think some of these uh mites and bugs and tiny things could have been replaced by alien bacteria or something along those lines and uh it would have been cool to have a sort of weird fiction uh, cosmic detective here, you know, who's also a doctor who who can point to, you know, asteroid landing sites and meteorite hits as the cause of some of these outbreaks. That would have been that would have been fun to read. Yeah, and so on that note, that's gonna do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought about this episode. Give us your thoughts on give us your thoughts on what Glenn and I really got caught up with in our discussion, which is uh, do we live in a time where these sorts of secret histories can really land and play well? And maybe there is a way that this book just doesn't quite represent, I think, for either of us. And while you're on the forum, I think you should take us up on this kind of embedded writing prompt that we laid out really just about 30 seconds ago, which is write your own secret history of the 20th century, a sort of secret weird fiction history of the 20th century. What items would you have included on uh, on, on your list, which, which would have made it in your secret history that don't get talked about here? Uh, put some aliens in there for us, too. We'd, we'd love to see something like that. <laughs> and if you want to check out our episode on Robert E. Howard's story, The Phoenix on the Sword, please do join us on patreon.com slash Clayton temple media we really appreciate all the support and we're very much looking forward to hitting some of our stretch goals this year we think we'll we'll make a few of those and that will mean being able to make more content for you very excited about that well next time we'll be back with an episode about our very first play which is the golden doom by lord dunsany but until then we greet you and say farewell